0: Hello and welcome to the Massage Matters podcast, a twice monthly podcast by the Massage Collective, Anna Maria Mazzieri, Becky DeMott-Horton and me, Matt Scarsbrook. You might notice that this is a slightly different start to a podcast for us, but that's largely because we had a fantastic opportunity to just sit with Bronnie Lennox Thompson and just talk. Now, between you and me, Normally, we like to have a little bit of an idea of where we might take the conversation in a podcast because someone needs to rein us in. Otherwise, we'd sit there and literally talk for hours, which I'm sure you'll understand if you've caught any of our previous podcasts. But on this occasion, we just finished doing some other work with Bronny and we had the opportunity to just start nattering. It sounded like it was going to be a good one. We hit record and this is what happened. So I'm going to apologise now for the sound quality. It's not the best in places because we weren't using our normal software, but we felt the quality of the conversation was just too good to miss. We couldn't let this one go without releasing it. And just before I let you dive into the podcast, remember June the 11th, Therapy Live. Go and get your tickets now. It's going to be an immense event. We've got over 100 speakers coming. The quality of the speakers looks amazing. We'll be there as a team talking across different streams, we want to see you there. So sit back and enjoy as Anna Maria and I get to natter with Bronnie about her perspectives on explain pain versus ACT in the clinic, communication skills in general, are we technicians or clinicians, massage education in the UK and right now going back in to talking about the different research methods we could be using and I'll see you at the end.
1: I mean, the thing is that we are working in a bit of a um, evidence vacuum mm. yeah, because it's, you can't do blinded studies with, with touch. Um, and and we, don't, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And so I, I think it's hard to really state categorically. And everybody's fibromyalgia, it, like it's a spectrum disorder. Some people are at one end and some people are at the other. I think you can shift that. Either way, I think you can unhelpfully rev fibromyalgia up and I think you can also settle it down a bit. Um, and so we don't know whether, but we know that one size doesn't fit all because along with the fibro, we've got a person yes. <laughs> who's got their own preferences and beliefs and understandings and culture and, and lifestyle. So, you know, the thought that we can follow an algorithm, <laughs> it's just not going to happen.
0: It's essentially what we're, we're trying to do as, as part of the podcast is, is try and gently, but firmly, compassionately, but firmly move people towards they they be less specific and be comfortable being less specific, um, there's some interesting debates uh obviously over um evidence-based and evidence-informed because of course can you really be an evidence-based massage therapist when there isn't any but could you at least be evidence-informed particularly as you say when it comes to your narrative um and and and, and again being comfortable that we don't know everything and and based on the current paradigm of rcts we're not going to know everything but again there's some really interesting work being done there
1: there There is some interesting research methodologies that could be used. It's just that we can't blind mm. either the operator or the, the individual to what's going on. So if we think about massage therapy or hands-on treatment from the moment somebody starts to talk <laughs> and meets mm. the therapist to the time they walk out, yeah. then we've got a real opportunity to start measuring some stuff that happens as a result of that narrative. So, if somebody, if, say we wanted to look at self efficacy, because that's one of the reasons that people say you shouldn't do hands on therapy because it takes away self efficacy. Well, what if you were putting some really good information in that put the person in the driving seat and you talked about some things that they could vary or modify in their own life? Then you do your hands on and then you leave them with a checklist of, or something written down this is what we're doing and then you send them away and you don't do that with another group you could actually do a really nice study if we get away from it's the hands-on bit if we start saying it's bigger than that
2: um we need to stop measuring in this case massage just for hands-on actually let's measure the encounter which contains the hands-on yeah, exactly. you know because you can do hands-on and hands-off would you have yeah. the same um
1: when you do uh, do hands-on and hands-off because i don't know a yes. massage therapist who doesn't yes talk yeah yeah so the person. No, no, it's what i
2: meant <laughs> as a control group, uh, don't, you don't, can don't. Do a whole interaction without hands at all and the, the intervention group has hands-on so in yeah that
1: case. yeah so there's there are um I think that idea of looking at the whole environment, if we go to Benedetti's work Mm. on on the patient's brain and we start to look at his idea of the the meet the therapist moment, is what he calls it, which I just love, which is not just about the interaction with the person and what they look like, but it's also the context that they're in. What environment? Like if you have a a therapy room that's got muscles and it's got a joint joint, sitting in the corner and it's got, you know, a skeleton here and there, that's putting across a message of some type. Yes. If you have one that's got the yes. nice smellies and the, you know, the soothing lighting and that sort of stuff, then that's putting across another paradigm. 100%. So each of those is going to give you a different experience. And part of it will be matching up the expectations of that person from the encounter. So So it would be interesting to say to somebody you you can choose, do you want this environment or that environment and and letting them choose or do a random allocation and see. You can do lots of, um, I think those things have yet to be measured very well. You'd be probably looking at social psychology as the group of researchers who know the most about this kind of stuff. Um, But I reckon that's something that is really exciting, that there's already been studies looking at whether physiotherapists should wear a suit or not, and it depends on the country. So, you know, what what a therapist wears is important. There's uh, um, Claire Ashton-James, who works at um, Sydney University, is a social psychologist, and she was looking at warmth and competence in Surgeons. So when we're, and it differs. So if we're at ED um, and we are desperate and distressed, we're le- we care less about the warmth. We want somebody who looks competent. But if you've got somebody who's, say, a geriatrician who's working with somebody, then they will want warmth and competence. That's really important. So in how we, how we display that, we know warmth is about demonstrating empathy, um, it's how you respond, it's asking open-ended questions, it's reflecting, it's all that stuff, that's warmth. And then the competence thing is, is a lot about the language that you might use. It might be about how confidently you move in the room. It might be about the way that you um, navigate that discussion and how you control it. So those are aspects that we don't yet know about um, hands-on therapies that really we could explore because that would give guidance to how do you, as a profession, present yourselves. Um, it's not Obviously, it's not gonna work with the people who do a weekend workshop and that suddenly they are a massage therapist, but- It's not go the, there. No, for the professional, which is what you guys are doing. That would be really useful research.
0: It's really, it's, it's it's actually really interesting because. So just to pick up on well, a few of your the many points you've just made, things like the 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 uniform, shall we call it? What what do you wear in in your clinic? Um, and I know that there is a wide range out there. There are people who prefer to wear what I would call tunics, the kind of things you might more expect in a, in a spa environment. There are people um, who, uh, because they're perhaps more aimed at the sporting sort of fraternities, they might be wearing um, tracksuit bottoms and a polo shirt. I personally um, rarely caught in anything other than shorts and a, and a polo shirt. Um, and so I'm probably giving off a, a, a certainly a, a type of experience or a persona without necessarily realising it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then, uh, you know, I did, when I first, when I very first started, I was working as a, I was employed as a massage therapist, but I was actually working as a um, physiotherapy assistant. Um, And because of the clinic I was in, I was wearing uh, a shirt and trousers. Um, So I was a massage therapist in a shirt and trousers. And I always felt that actually that was almost um an oxymoron almost Mm -hmm. yeah well yeah it was too Mm -hmm. clinical it was not you know I couldn't relax if I with a guy in a soup (laughs) you know and I I don't know why my clients should have been able to so yeah that's that's fascinating and I think you're right as far as I'm aware none of that has been looked at from uh from within manual therapies and, and actually trying to understand um you know does having the skeleton in the corner and the charts on the walls with all the muscles and things, does that suggest I'm clinically competent or does that suggest I'm about to do things to you?
1: We don't know, and we, we need to. Now, that's the sort of thing that is important. So Rachel has her greyhound um, in, in the room, which is wonderful, or sometimes she's in the room, sometimes she's not, because you know that conveys something. And I I also think that as clinicians, we need to be authentic. So what fits you as a person? Because part of that warmth and competence is about people spot bullshit really quickly. So if you're faking it, they're probably going to pick it up. Um, So I've I've learned over the years to be myself and not to try and be this um, so-called professional or super slack. I modify my language a little bit, a little bit. (laughs) But it's about, um, because it takes energy to be somebody that you're not. And yes, you can get practiced at it, but it still feels like you're putting something on rather than being authentic. And I think people are looking for authenticity in their clinical encounters. We've probably all been to some medical practitioner who sits behind a computer screen. And we never actually get to know them. And there's been this huge thing about, um, in psychological circles, about not disclosing anything about yourself. And that's really artificial. Um, You know, why not say that I'm, you know, connecting with somebody that I'm also interested in that sport or I went on a holiday last week? That's about this authentic human interaction and connection. That I think we we kind of undervalue.
0: So this is this is something then that that okay. So this has been knocking around uh, in a conversation between myself and a couple of um, uh, colleagues actually, and and um, I'd be really interested, given your such broad background in this area. So um, obviously uh, you are a teacher in 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 act therapy um uh, and and it's it's something and, and i want to touch on on sort of the differences between that and the explain pay model because i know that you're uh, you, you have your sort of um uh views on on each of those and how they sit but from a from an, a patient or client encounter in that therapeutic space in that therapeutic encounter what we're sort of saying or what i think we're saying as we understand a bit more about the human psyche and a bit more about manual therapy per se is it is likely that there is a more significant psychological influence than there is physiological influence when it comes to the provision of hands-on therapies um and i i say that in a sense that if we're interacting with the skin and we're interacting with the nerves those nerves are ending up somewhere and they are affecting our psychology, but as we've just discussed, the clinical context has a huge impact there.
1: I think one of the things that um, psychology is kind of, I guess, is misunderstood about psychology is that it's sort of woolly and out there somewhere, but it's actually neurobiological as well. So all learning is in the brain It's about how how we're wired Um, and those senses of feeling calm is neurobiological um of feeling trust is about a process that's you know we're social beings so even that is is going to have an influence neurobiologically as well as on a communication level and so it's sort of the level of analysis i think so we think about the um I call it the meaning response rather than placebo because placebo refers to the thing that's inert, but we look at the effect of receiving an inert substance. It's not the substance, it's the ritual around it. And This is what Benedetti talks about that we have this feeling sick, so we've got to decide is this normal for me or am I feeling sick? Then we seek treatment and that's socially informed. So we already know that if you've chosen to come and see a massage therapist, you probably have some idea about what you're looking for. Because everybody knows at least something about a massage therapist. And that's going to shape expectations. Part of the meaning response is expectation. It's that sense of, I know what's happening, this is what I expect to have happen. Um, Then he talks about the meet the therapist moment which is that social connection. Um, he, when he talks about the seeking treatment, he talks about an, an evolutionary process where we have given people a role that is different from the lay person. So you have as therapists a specific role in in our world. And that started from probably Shaman and um, you know the, the local healer who was also interested in your spiritual health. But over time, we've separated that out and we've now got lots of different people who can offer different kinds of healing. And that the, the way that we as a community see that is um, at that social level. We don't talk much about the social and the biopsychosocial model Perhaps We need to, because this is social. It's about that connection. So in those processes, when when he um, talks about them, what he's really describing are when you do a any therapeutic thing, there are neurobiological changes, and they're really around expectations that, you know, this is what I think this treatment is going to do, which in, they start to initiate the neurobiological changes. So if we're looking at analgesia, when he... Um, did his paradigm with um, with the hidden in the open paradigm of giving people saline versus um, an opioid. When people knew that they were getting an opioid, they got a great response. When they thought they were getting an opioid, but they were getting saline, they got a great response. When they thought they were getting saline, but they were getting an opioid they had a reduced response. So that's really interesting. Our nervous system does this, and this is real measurable stuff. Now, meaning response in placebo isn't as effective in other parts of our human biology, but for pain, for Parkinson's, so dopamine, um, yes, it is. It's quite significant. It's probably part of everything that we do. So it, to me, it suggests that um, that there are neuro, there are physiological changes that occur. Um, so I talked about expectation. The other part is is we learn. So if you get given a treatment and it has an effect, then there is a conditioning response. And they're using this with um, opioid sparing. So they give somebody opioid opioid for a certain number of days, and then they give them a placebo. And it allows the, the plus, allows the opioid response without the adverse side effects of sedation and constipation. They just give them a nice pain relief. And so there's some really interesting research going on there that's showing that we've got this incredible in, innate capacity that perhaps we can use in a positive way instead of seeing it as a confound in research. So if we think about the clinical encounter it's full of meaning it's full of ritual it's full of what the community thinks you're going to get and what this person experiences isn't that cool we can yes we can foster that yeah Uh, yeah we can
0: foster so so i would so i'd like to ask then so okay two parts to this question so the first part is at what point um No, how can I phrase this okay so the context that I've put it into when I've been discussing this is that I see that the biomedical community uh, the historical biomedical community has uh, is embracing things like the biopsychosocial model which by definition are including the psychosocial bits um, and are sort of saying okay what we thought we were doing biologically there is now an influence psychologically and socially although we can never split those three out as distinctly obviously, but what I'm not seeing as clearly, and it's perhaps because of the the sort of spheres that I don't move within, is the psychologists embracing the biopsychosocial model in terms of needing to understand actually some of where the biology might be coming in and, and being at play when <laughs> when working with psychologists. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, I'm sort of, I'm curious to know at what point does someone like a massage therapist know where the line is when a psychotherapist should be involved and also vice versa. Is there a model where actually someone could do the whole lot where I, my understanding is that in psychotherapy, almost rule number one is don't touch the patient. There has to be a, you know, a a clinical uh, separation, if you will, in order to maintain boundaries. So I'm curious to sort of get your feel on on that side of things, Um, and then the other point, which is (laughs) close out of my head, which is really frustrating. But I might come back to. So let's start with that one. What 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 do you feel there?
1: So we need to be really clear that as non psychologists, I have a masters in psychology, but I'm not a psychologist. Um, We are not psychologists. Are we not doing psychotherapy? What we're doing is being humans. We're being humans who use communication really thoughtfully. And we communicate in how we dress, how we speak, in the rooms that we inhabit and, and use. That's context. So to my mind, that is as yes, it's psychological and social, but we're not trying to do psychotherapy in that. What we are doing is communicating clearly and use harnessing the things that we know are effective. Even using um, CBT is, in many respects, it's about being a good communicator. It's about helping somebody evaluate what they're thinking about. I don't move that way. ACT, on the other hand, so ACT is available to everybody it's a human process, it's about human processes, it's not about um, psychotherapy, because ACT says, yes, you might be getting really stuck in your mind, but I'm not going to give you a diagnosis, because what you're doing is human, Mm. common to us all, Um, and, Mm. and to be honest, the diagnostic, so the DSM manual is a really good classification system, but it's not telling us anything about the mechanisms involved and how mental illnesses are developed. So it's essentially not that helpful. (laughs) And and our treatments are not that wonderful either when we look at them for mental illness as well as pain. So what we're trying to do is help a person who's stuck in a predicament. And we could encounter somebody who's really distressed and wants to, is thinking about suicide any day. And we should always have as a human, have some kind of action plan. Because we're going to encounter somebody who's at the end of their wits. They've just, you know, life's just been horrible. So we should have an action plan, which says, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to help you get some help. And that's all. We don't need to talk about their childhood trauma. We shouldn't be thinking about delving into somebody's sort of past history in that way. That's not our job. Let let the professionals do that. But we can use psychological principles and we can use social principles and we can be humans. um, I'm quite quite clear about that. As an OT, I do have a um, a benefit in that I am trained across biopsychosocial areas. We are trained in mental health and we are trained in physical health, but I am not a psychologist. And yet I do act and I've done CBT
2: it's interesting though what matt said so we as let's call it more physical therapists, kind of we 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 use psychologically informed practice yeah. Yeah. do psychologists use biologically informed practice though so do do so you see what i mean um yeah,
1: I, and i agree with you yeah pain practice mm. so um one of the things that the program that I teach on is it's interprofessional. So we have every profession gets the same stuff. Um, we don't have that many psychologists who come along and do our program, even though there are lots of them doing pain management. Some of that's about the belief that psychologists have that I'm just using what I do in psychology, but with this pain experience. I don't know that that's very helpful. I think we need to be across the team. We need to hold a similar model, or the same model actually, mm-hmm. with pain. Um, so yes, there are some that are delving into physical stuff, and it's primarily around trauma response, so the physiological response to trauma. Um, but not, and some of them are looking at body, so somatic stuff, and mm. um, they're looking at movement, but it's not as widespread, and I guess in some ways that's sort of as a little bit fringe. Certainly in New Zealand, um, psychology is dominated by cognitive behavioural therapy, which doesn't really go into the physical as much. And ACT can be used in any context, so we can employ it within any setting, including physical. Um, It's just that a lot of the People using ACT come from social work, psychology, perhaps nursing, and don't do the what, what, stuff that what, I do.
2: Where do you put pain education into it, into your? Because I remember when during the during the course you mentioned that you know about pain and uh, PNE. So when when do you when do you do you use it with ACT? Do you not use it at
1: all? How do um, you? It's part of getting on the same page with people. I don't give Mm. education. What I do is I explore this person's experience with them. We talk about what happens in various situations and then I help them draw the dots between, connect those dots between their experience and the kind of, they'll have in their head some kind of theory or model because pain's around us and we can say, I can help them work out does this theory you've got fit with your experience so you know your experience is yours so how come you've got this belief and it doesn't seem to fit with what you're experiencing and that's a more powerful way to help somebody understand what's going on and occasionally feed a little bit in um but i don't do explain pain Um, I used to do talk about the gate control theory before EP came along, and the risk that we have is that people misinterpret it as saying that it's imaginary, it's in my head. And that has been, that has existed in pain narratives since gate control theory. You know, it's not a new thing. Um, I can recall, distinctly recall conversations about that um, right back in the in the 80s. So we can't say it's we just know that people still dichotomize their experiences, either mental health or it's body. Pain is not like that. It's a whole person experience. Mm, so that's why I don't do that. Yeah. Um, sometimes just- anybody can do, anybody can give information and we should do that in response to questions. So use a motivational interviewing approach. Is it okay if I yes. share with you some stuff? Yes. Hey, I wonder what would happen if you tried this and you know, let's have a look at your experience, how does this fit with your experience, so that people can, you know, understand, like I do talk about the fact that things like attention make a difference to your pain, so we talk about when you notice your pain and when you don't, so you don't notice your pain when you're really busy, but you do when it's really quiet and it's three in the morning, so, you know, how come, if this is all about your, um, your broken tissues, how come
2: you've got this different experience what's going on there uh, yes i very Hi. much yes i very much align with that because mm. uh, although i find pain education really useful in certain it's according to the person going in front of me some people yeah. want to know and sometimes that helps me to or it helps them to understand the mm. biological possibility of uh, they they believe some pain but i have a problem with the word education i uh, me educating uh, it puts me as a therapist in a in a hierarchy i i have a problem with that i think is communicating pain you know communicating pain uh, a concept instead of mm. educating pain because actually it is so much their experience and their understanding of what they're yeah. going on and I don't have to educate them so the word educate but sometimes according to the person I have in front of me eh, I can find that very useful because otherwise how are we going to explain them
1: yeah so I'm, I'm a geek and I was given I was given this book Malzak and Wall's book which is as geeky as you can get and it was all about the gate control theory. Um, So I'm one of these people who would love to know the theory and rejoice in it but I've got other people that I've worked with who really don't get it and and why keep forcing it at them and sometimes experiential or we know experiences count for more. They're much more remembered than, than head knowledge so I, I also agree with you that I don't like to use the term education because you're right, it puts me as I know more than you. Well, actually I know more about some stuff, Yes. but you know more about other yes. stuff, your life, what, what it's been like for you, what's been going on. So we're not, um, we're just guiding. So I facilitate, I coach, I might, um, I might sit beside, I might be your cheerleader, but I'm, yes. not, I'm not educating.
2: Was it TMO Pain? Um, was he was he Kato at the last San Diego Pain Summit? That she said she was a was the highlight of of the presentation of the the weekend. And she said, if you as a therapist struggle to tell me about pain, don't let me tell you what pain is for me. And she was so. Powerful because we always say, "Oh, how should I communicate to to the clients uh, about pain education?" and and
1: actually, yeah. no, let them. Yeah, you know who and are we? If we if we're all in a team, we're working in a team. If we all have a common understanding, and so whenever the question arises and people do ask questions, if we're given the same stuff. That makes sense, which is why, you know, it's important for psychologists to understand pain. They need to know that stuff. Same as a social worker and the nurse and the doctor and the OT and the physio and the chiropractor and the osteopath, I don't care. (laughs) As long as we're all coming from that same united model. Um, What we know is that people with pain are constantly getting bombarded by Google saying, here's the answer. I've got the answer, and and so much of that's about, I can fix you, I can cure you, or take it all away, blah, 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 and they're mis, the misleading, some of them are, are quite frankly wrong, and then we wonder why that person comes to a team, and then they have that one person in the team who backs up their idea, and we wonder why they follow that person, yes. you know, and the rest of us get it in the next, so...
0: It's so, big so what's jumping out at me so um another another aspect that we are really keen on sort of championing i suppose on the podcast is education uh but from the other perspective as in training people who are coming into the industry um yeah. and i guess what i'm hearing which if i'm hearing correctly is music to my ears or i'm just twisting your words to speak my own prerogative which is but um <laughs> is is essentially we, we interact as therapists. We're interacting with our clients as human beings. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're, 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 and and it is that that whole human approach in order to get our biopsychosocial in there. Now we are moving slowly, ever so slowly in the UK. Um, the, 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 generally, what happens on on massage courses is you're taught a huge amount of anatomy. You're told what you're doing with that anatomy when you're massaging it, and then you're yeah. sent out to work. And we're moving slowly to, you know, courses are starting to realize that Melzack and Wall uh, wasn't yesterday. Um, pain has been, you know, complicated for a little while now. And so actually teaching a little bit of pain science to students to provide an understanding of what's perhaps going on in clinic is important but what we're perhaps not teaching is how to communicate that knowledge because we've always been used to i've learned my anatomy so i can tell you mr client what's going on with your with your knee and the meniscus that's born and it's flapping around and all this horrible stuff but we're not we're not very good at communicating it and what i'm sort of seeing when, you know, with, with courses that are provided, like, like at, um, you know, mentioning CBT, but of course it's, it's not really available, uh, to, to a, a normal massage therapist is, is ways of communicating to the client.
1: Yeah.
0: And I suppose, I guess where I'm going is, do you have a view when it comes to physical therapies, of, of all flavors, do you have a view on how, firstly, how much of the basic training should be focused on communication as opposed to just pure anatomy? Um, <laughs> I, I have, I have a view on that. I think we absolutely need to be red hot on our red flags beyond that. Yeah. Maybe for the rehab side, but then also do you see, do you f- have a feeling that some of the communication training is more effective after some clinical experience, after some life experience in the clinic, and therefore maybe it's not suitable for basic training, it comes later?
1: That's a really good question, and it's one that I've pondered. So in looking at at physical therapy training, so physio training, um, it's quite common for the new physios to say, I'm just trying to get the basics here. I'm screening out my red flags and I'm just and I have to follow the algorithm and part of that's because we train people to be black and white. Yes, no, right, wrong. During training, you've got to get your anatomy perfect and that same model applies to the treatment. You've got to be able to recite the treatment and do it in the right order. Otherwise, I don't know, maybe the world will stop turning or something. Not sure what. So people come out of training. I'm not sure whether that applies to um, massage therapy, um, but I know that it happens with physio. And so they people come out feeling quite scared that they're, they're going to get it wrong. And then, so the first year is probably trying to do it right. Second year, they start to say, hmm, hold on, this isn't working. (laughs) How come? Am I doing it wrong? So they start to doubt themselves. Am I doing it wrong? And then the third year, some of them will say, I wonder if it's because what I was taught wasn't right. I need to learn some more stuff. So some will go down the track of, I'll do some more modalities because that's what I learned to do. Others will realize or do that and then realize, "Well, that's not helping either and start to see that maybe there's a bigger picture. I, I don't know, I think we should introduce it in undergrad. I think we need to have, we need to include pain in undergraduate training. We need that. And we do, most courses will have something about communication, but the tie, tying in between the here's the pain stuff and here's your conversations around it, I don't think has been done very well. And there's a, there's a fear, I think, that that if we start to talk about reflective listening and we talk about motivational interviewing, that you're going to turn into psychologists. And I think that's a bit disrespectful to psychologists, to be honest, because they do a shit ton more than that. And you guys always do communication. You always do. I don't know any massage therapist who does, zips the lip and says, "Here, yeah, walk in, or doesn't say, just opens the door, You know, you've got to. So maybe we need to spend more time thinking about that and less time thinking that this psychosocial stuff only applies when the other stuff doesn't work. That actually this is about people and we as people are whole people, not a body bit and a mind over there somewhere. Um, And maybe that would help. But it makes life complicated as an educator and it makes life complicated as a learner, because where we expect to have right and wrong. So I'm in the fortunate position of working in postgraduate space. So I'm happy to give people here are two opposing ideas. You sort it out. You tell me, and give me the reason why you think that. And you know, so I can do that and show how ambiguous the state of our knowledge actually is and i think that would be a little bit scary as an undergrad well, and there's
0: some things
1: we know about like anatomy we do know pretty don't much. you think also though the people that
2: get into for example let's talk about massage therapy they get into any manual therapy are very hands-on people so the first uh, what the first choice of cpd will be a hands-on cpd because that's how they yeah. learn yeah. themselves i think yeah. if we cha- we need to go really really back you know when you said before you said about the the predictive processing of uh, Mm -hmm. you know socially what do we think about a treatment this is what we need to start shifting socially a bigger level when we think about for example let's say massage therapy we think about i use always the word the encounter so is the is the whole experience because then if we can instill that into our practitioner, we say actually when you get yourself into massage therapy you need to know that you're not getting into a hands-on therapy, you're getting into an encounter therapy. No, the balance between the hands-on is the same than the communication. It's a different type of communication, actually. One is with your hands, one without.
0: The bit that I find challenging in all of this is I would love to stand in front of, um, you know, day one, new class and go, there is no recipe. I'm not even going to pretend to give you one. I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to give you the ingredients. You mix them. Um, yeah. But I think that scares people. The
1: learning, don't we? We scaffold learning. So yes. We put the frameworks around it. What we are less good at doing is starting to let go of the frame and being yeah. explicit that these are only frameworks. They're not meant to be the building. And so let's just take that those scaffolds away before people graduate. And, and I don't think we do that because there's this, I have to pass an exam thing that goes on in everybody's mind. And so maybe if the exam was about, tell me some principles, let's work on how you might apply this in a novel situation. That might help
0: to- um, I also- Do you think also there is an implicit need for a learner who is stepping into a new environment for the first time, a new learning environment for the first time, that they need to know there's a framework they can at least be putting building blocks into uh, so that they can see their own progress? Because one of the things I perceive is that if we're going to make sort of the kind of changes we'd love to see in education, then actually, it has to start with the training schools, It'll be exactly. those universities or vocation or whatever. It has to be with the training schools. But those training schools, in order to sort of make ground, there's no point having a syllabus that's that's totally revolutionary and fits with everything we know if no one turns up and studies there. Yeah. And and so there's a I think there's a a, a dichotomy where you're trying to almost say we know. Yeah. We know that we can be a lot less prescriptive but how do i communicate to you that essentially there is no one way of doing this because you're looking for the one way of doing it you're looking for the right answer when you're looking at syllabuses and, yeah but
2: that, let's let's not forget about the layering of yeah. education so you know a, a lower uh, thinking processes the students just need the just need listing or describing as you as you mm-hmm. as you go high on to higher the processes, you know, level four and level five learning, then your you're thinking is more complex then you can. F- you know, starting analyzing and bringing Surprise. in radio. so that's what that's that, you know, we I we love those that. ideas. I the love students. those ideas. Sorry.
0: I said, we know that as educators, yeah. we understand the differences at the different levels. And, and, Rodney, you know, you, you, you work in, as you say, in the sort of the post, post grad space. And so, you know, the, the, the huge difference between, yeah. you know, some undergrad is still spoon fed, <laughs> whereas <laughs> post grad, it's a case of exactly as you say, you yeah. solve it. Um, but, Pretty but, <laughs> but I suppose at that, that, at those, at those levels where we're talking, Anna, and we're talking sort of level three, level four, level five in the UK. As educators we know that as students looking for a center of education how do you communicate that no no
2: yeah but that's what I was gonna say so so you as an educator you have to bring those students at that level of thinking where they can think independently can think abstractively but they can only do that if you give them first a little bit of, can I say structure?
1: <laughs> yeah. I talk about bi- scaffolding. Yes, yeah. yes, a little yeah. bit of scaffolding,
2: exactly. yeah. which then they feel safe. And after, they so for, us, for example, we with the massage courses at the beginning, we, we do not teach, um, reper- what do you call it? A repertoire, well, the way, um, how do you call it in English? Yeah, yeah, a protocol. Mm-hmm. So students struggle with that. So sometimes you have to they have to learn to feel uncomfortable, but also they have to be directed a little bit. Then once they've been directed and that they, they, they get, gain more experience, then they can move out. And then as they go on, they can start then experience, adding their own experience, adding their own their own part. So it is layer. So you know, although yeah, we love to be in the first day of the class and say, you know. Uh, we do not know and th- 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 you know bringing in the chaos I think from a tutor to a learner we need to appreciate that they need to have gone through the different stages of thought processing
1: or learning processes you know again we yeah, like- that and move at their pace is one of those principles mm-hmm. that we use in our ot training and actually I wonder whether ot training might be a, a useful model so although it's changed a little bit, I graduated many, many, many years ago. But you start in the first year, um, we used to start with um, normal anatomy, physiology, psychology, sociology, and normal human occupation, you know, normal doing, what people do. And then the second year, we'd start to move into you know areas where things deviate from so-called normal. So or we'd say in the first year it's healthy, and then the next year, we've got deviations from, from that. And what does that look like? So we're starting to recognize the patterns. And then, and, and inside OT, we've got um, uh, multiple models that really are like those frameworks, those scaffolds that um, are about this is what we think occupation is about. This is, this is a person doing stuff and here's all the things we think influence that doing. And so there are lots of different models. But as we get out of um, sort of that, in that third year where we're applying it, what we're learning is that there are times when you might shift frame frameworks. You might need to work from a biomechanical model for a certain thing. If you're doing hand therapy and you've got to do a splint, you need to know some biomechanics and you need to know some anatomy and some physiology as well. And then, if you're working with somebody who's got dementia, you need to understand how can I simplify and change what I'm doing to suit their cognitive capabilities. And then, and yet they're still inside this occupational model. And then, your, when you start to graduate, you start to find um, things that you resonate more with. And so, some people, will, some OTs will go into mental health, and that's their, their favorite thing, and others go into physical health. Well, I, I went into pain because <laughs> to me it embodied both. It's, you can't separate. And so, I and I went fairly quickly away from um, an occupation-focused model. I still think in terms of people context and what they do. And the people part is kind of layered and complicated. But I shifted away from some of the more prescriptive models because if we think about... Um, technicians. Technicians follow the recipe. Professionals follow principles. And that makes us more versatile. It allows us to be able to choose how we apply this. And I think that's what comes into the OT training in the third year, is here are several different models. Now, you've got to think, which one's most applicable? which, Which one has the principles that are going to be most versatile for this person? knowing the so-called normal and the less normal or unhealthy. And I guess that kind of helps to break it down a little bit. And we are trained across both mental health and um, physical health. So it's hard. We can't divide as OTs. We can't divide it very much. We just know that the ones that go into work into a physical hospital are more likely to be dealing with the physical end. But we're always thinking, what's this person like? In the hospital. If we're going to discharge them home, what are they going to need so they can function in the way that suits them in their own environment, which is about whole person kind of stuff. We know they're stressed in hospital and they'll feel better in their own home. That's the way that we kind of scaffold stuff so you know what to expect of it. Doesn't mean we always achieve it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I do
2: look, sorry. yeah. Sorry, Anna, you go. I, I do like what you said about the technician and clinician because that's something that I always say to our therapists. We start as technicians mm. because we learn uh, under supervision yeah. how to. We end up, though, at the end of the course and, what, and to be clinicians because actually we use all their knowledge, but we have to then. Critically, eva- clinically and critically evaluate mm-hmm. all yeah. the information we have of the person in front of us to mm-hmm. provide the appropriate plan and that's what makes a makes a big difference that's why working in healthcare we cannot be technician we have to be clinicians yeah. so i love i love that idea of scaffolding I, I will have to use it with our students i love the idea of scaffolding yep. it's great
0: and I think just reflecting, Ronnie, on what you were saying there as, as an OT, um, and, and how you can't separate the the physical from the from the mental, but but it, it reminds me, and I can't remember where I was having the conversation. It might have been at, at, at San Diego Payne, the virtual summit this this year. Um, but you know, I reflected on on this idea of, of massage therapists like to sort of compare themselves to physiotherapists in so much as the type of clientele that they see and the type of problems they work on predominantly i think because of this slight fascination with the fact that what we're doing is physical somehow it's that word it's that physical therapist i'm doing physical things um and and a reflection that i was having on that is that you know uh, one of the the things that, that physios uh, often do and, and particularly and massage therapists do as well when they're in uh, when they kind of get into those positions is um, they will provide treatments at a sporting in a sporting context so mm-hmm. they will go to the training uh, area um, oh I think it was actually it was with Jamie Johnson who was talking about this because Jamie oh, yeah. Johnson obviously he, he uh, provides uh, therapy in the ice hockey context yep. and One of the things that jumped out to me that OTs do is that you, you, as you, exactly as you said there, you specialize in considering the person in their context, the the normal person in their normal context. And as massage therapists, we tend to see the normal person in our context. It's our clinic they come to. So it's our clinic they're moving around. It's our clinic they're exercising in. It's our clinic that they're, they're, expressing themselves in and actually I think perhaps there's a there's there's, there's something we're missing there in that when we're talking rehabilitation when we're talking context when we're talking understand the person really understanding the person should be in their context which is something that's been
1: been my um, argument about exercise we need to do if we're going to do exercise in the gym it's got to have some carryover into the person's life. And hopefully that person can, if they like going to the gym, then they might carry on. But if they don't like the gym, then they need to be able to do those same things. In their in env- They're going to need to do something that works for them in their lifestyle. And I think we can prescribe forgetting that this person's already got a life. And so we just plunk this new thing in as if it just, they're just going to make room for it instead of considering how they're going to do that because it's not easy you know you just ask somebody to even to do a five minute breathing activity and they'll struggle with that you know it's hard to find five minutes it's not really but it feels hard and if we look at what we do how easy is it for us to do a five minute of something that's new, unfamiliar, and we didn't really enjoy doing it in school anyway. <laughs> so, that contextual thing. The other thought, thing I thought about is that often we teach, um, and we kind of need to, the unhealthy thing in isolation. So, here's your tendonitis, here's your sore shoulder. But we forget that this person's also probably, if they're my age, they might be pre diabetic, they might have hypertension. They've also got this fear that, that you know, my parents are aging and they had cancer, wonder if I've got cancer. So that's that whole um, remembering that that one thing that we think we're tackling is inside a person who's got all of this stuff as well. And so we can't just treat the one thing. We never are. But we kind of, I think, quite often learn, narrow down our, our reasoning to the one the presenting problem. Um, Maybe there's a whole person who's presenting and the problem that they're asking about is is this. And sometimes I wonder whether we even ask about, ask the person, what is your main concern? We assume because they're coming in with a sprain that fixing that's their main concern, but maybe their main concern is, well, how am I gonna do my work tomorrow? And do we ever ask, what's your main concern about this problem? Oh,
2: absolutely it's about. not about our experience it's about them it's about what they yeah. want what they want to achieve what they struggle to do we forget yeah. we forget we still to therapist focus um absolutely what well, uh, oh i just God, Go Yeah, i was gonna say so, just to wrap up a little bit <laughs> um <laughs> I was well, we?
1: worried because, you, you know, it's late for you
0: guys. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, Bronny, but essentially what Anna and I have done, we'd normally have some structure to the podcast, but what's actually happened is we've got you and we've just had the chat we wanted.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. Good. And then awesome. we can just, this is lovely. So, um, Bronny, usually on our podcast, we do theory to practice. We mm. do... Um, Uh, We ask our guests uh, to give our listeners uh, some tips, uh, some strategies uh, to put Mm -hmm. into their practice that can be clinically applicable, they can use straight away into practice. This is completely open to you because we didn't have a, we didn't have a, a thread or a theme to this podcast <laughs> because it was up, so it's, absolutely, it's a free flowing podcast, which I am absolutely loving. Um, well, give me three theory to practice
1: points. Okay. First one, and I use this for my students. Always ask the so what question. When you're learning something new why so what how is this going to change my practice you know is it going to make a difference is it so what <laughs> because I think that we learn we do stuff often for CPD and things that we don't we do because we think we ought to but we don't actually think about how we might use it and apply it that's number one um, the second, so the second theory to practice is to remember that communication is is inherent to practice, and so that might mean slowing down. It might mean you need to write some phrases down if you're finding that you're asking closed questions, for example. Maybe writing some some questions down and learning to rehearse to use those maybe it's about reflective listening and so how can I how can I ask the person to summarize um how could I use teach back for example so jotting jotting a phrase or a new thing that you want to implement down in your communication practice I think is a, it's a way to make it easier to learn And I, that's one of the things I do in my courses on you know we do a, what are you going to do Monday list and one of them will be so what phrases are you going to do? I also ask people in my courses to say, so what was um, something new that I learned? What's something that I was reminded of? Um, Because that's a cool thing. And what's something that I have a question about? So I think that would be, after listening to this podcast, maybe that's something that listeners could do is to say, so what was I reminded of? What was brand new and radical probably nothing because it's all practical common sense um but what have I got questions about so that that can bring you to ask more questions and find stuff out that keeps us curious I'm I swear it keeps us young um and and it just keeps us curiosity is about playfulness and finding that the world is new and shiny and there's stuff there so it keeps us a bit more positive so I think that would be you know, maybe that's something that people could do is write an answer to those three questions. I love that. That's, I theory
0: that's, uh, that's a brilliant theory to practice. I love that. Mm. So in terms of you, Bronnie, because I mean, we've talked a lot about your ideas and your thoughts and things, but, but what's, what's next for you? And, and if people wanted to find out a little bit more about you, where should they be going?
1: Um. So I do write the blog. Um, which is www.healthskills.co.mz and people can find me um, I'm posting a little less regularly um, at the moment just because I realised I was turning myself into a sort of, it felt like an obligation and it was getting a bit stale but I've been blogging since 2007 so there is a shit ton of material on there um, that people are most welcome to delve into um, also, all the photography in there is mine. So, if you want to have a look at photography, that's where it goes. Um, I'm on Facebook, um, but I'm, I've got quite a few people on my wait list for friends. So, I'm you know I need to know a connection between you and and me before we connect. So, you know, don't just say I want to be your friend. Say something to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I post a lot in the Exploring Pain. Um, meaning and research um, group. I dip in and out of a whole bunch of others. So you'll probably see me on on Facebook. And I do have the the, um, Health Skills New Zealand Facebook page, um, which you can throw comments on. That's where I post my blog. Where am I going from here? Um, I've got quite a few speaking things. It seems like Zoom's made life a lot, is a lot more accessible for people. Um, and that means, and it's great because I don't have to travel. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, don't, cope with jet lag. Although I wouldn't mind going to, to the UK. I love that actually.
2: Oh, but, today um, was, was the most amazing weather. Down here, walking on the beach, down here
1: oh, in the mountains. Whoa. Oh, so nice. <laughs> it's spring though, so it's going to rain tomorrow. And then it's going to snow. So, you know, <laughs> you and I know what spring's like. We're in autumn, so it's just gradually getting colder. Um, What else is happening for me? I'm going to go and spend some more time hammering some silver and putting some flame to silver and make some more jewelry because one of the things that I know that I need to do is balance my kind of output with some stuff that's for me. And making stuff is my outlet. I've always done it. And I when I don't do it, things get out of whack. So I do something. Photography, um, sewing, designing stuff, making jewellery, oh, was belly dance, I still I still garden. So all of that stuff is kind of soul replenishing. So I do that too. Yeah.
0: And are you are you teaching ACT at all at the moment?
1: Um I have got, oh, there is an online course that I have set up. Um, and it's on the courses page on the blog. Um, and this is for a group program that people can take. Um, so you learn how to be the facilitator. And the program is ACT-based. And it's for people with pain. So anybody can do that. And when you finish it, you get a workbook that you can then use. And you get access to a folder um, of, full of material, resources and stuff that program is called Springboard and it's being used around New Zealand. Um, It's one of the few programs that's being funded by our national insurer um, as part of the pain management community level services. Um, But I just want to make that more widely available. And it's act-based, act and motivational engineering. So you get a dollop yeah. of both.
2: Um,
1: but yeah, there will be an act course. I'm coming to do one via Le pub in July. Oh wow.
2: It'll be
1: yeah, it'll be a three-day course. So um,
0: yeah. Oh, so that's, that's LaPub scientifique for people who aren't familiar. Yeah. So,
1: Tim grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, You can do it. So <laughs> I can do it.
0: So you can do it yeah there you go can, yeah. i'll do it <laughs> well listen it's been um as as, as anna alluded to uh, th- yeah essentially this has been the conversation we wanted to have um and it's been absolutely lovely to have so much time with you so thank you very very much uh, it's been absolutely, absolutely my lovely.
1: pleasure and do stay in touch Please. we will <laughs> hopefully then
0: when i press the friend request on facebook you'll recognize me now <laughs>
1: just put a, put a little commentary i'm the guy that
0: yeah out, out of context that sounds really weird because of course this is a podcast and no one can see <laughs> my sexy lighting but for those who now <laughs> are imagining me and my sex <laughs> Probably enough said. Yes,
1: else oh, <laughs> was going to say? That's not the open mouth. What well, open mouth change feet, yeah. right? <laughs> absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, Thank that's absolutely. Thank you. Absurd.
1: Thank you very much, Brony. Absolute pleasure. You're wonderful hosts.
0: So. Hopefully now you can see why we just had to release this conversation that we'd had with Bronny. It was phenomenal. We thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was ridiculously late at night by the time Anna Maria and I finished so that we could uh, keep it in a good time zone for Bronny, who's based obviously in New Zealand. As always, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you uh, don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. You can find us on social media at The Massage Collective on Facebook at the underscore Massage Collective on Instagram. And you can always email us on massage at physio-matters.com. We'll see you next time.